Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Before we get into things, we're really excited to announce that we're launching subscriptions on Apple Podcasts. So when you subscribe to WMN Politics Plus, you'll get access to exclusive Majority 54 bonus content, including extended interviews and topical explainers that are not included in the weekly episodes. You'll also get early access to political audio docs like Teaching Texas, hosted by Majority 54 producer Grace Lynch. You are the ones who keep this show going, and we'd really appreciate your support as we head into the midterms. We want to give you even more content that arms you with everything you need to know. So head on over, when you're done listening to this episode, to Apple Podcasts to sign up for the WMN Politics Plus subscription. All right, with that out of the way, Ravi, how you doing? Well, I just got one thing to say, Jason. The bills make me want to shout. Kick your heels up and shout. Throw your hands up and shout. Throw your head back and shout. Is that a Bills song to the tune of That's shout? the Bills shout song. That's our song. Um, oh, you would know that if you came to Orchard Park, which I, I might have yeah. gotten you to promise that you do at some point. I can't remember. There's no way I, with two children, promised that. But yes, sure. It's not an easy place to get from Kansas City to Buffalo. But 41 to 7, we've now beaten both the defending champion, Los Angeles Rams, and now the AFC first seed last year, Tennessee Titans. And uh, I'm feeling pretty good. I think we should book those Super Bowl tickets now. Yeah, Arizona, I think it's well, in Arizona this year. There's definitely two juggernaut teams, y'all and us. And, the, and us, the Miami like Dolphins? Play for them. Yeah. Oh, right, sure. And the, of course, <laughs> the Miami Dolphins, yes. Uh, yeah, no, I'm glad that you're excited. I had a very uh, exciting sporting event thing happen in the family this weekend, which is, um, you know, there can't possibly be anything more dull than listening to this podcast and hear me talk about my son's baseball exploits. But that's not going to stop me. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, as I've mentioned before, True joined a fourth grade team. He's the only third grader. I'm very proud of him for doing this. It's an addition to the third grade team I coach because it took a lot of courage to do it. And uh, they had this big game the other day where they played the team that had won the whole league in the spring. And it was like a one run game in the end. And they the coach put True in to pitch the last two innings. He faced six batters. He struck out five of them and was just like, unbelievably calm the whole way, didn't allow a run. And I've got this amazing video, which I posted on uh, Instagram and Twitter, which is uh, true throwing the last pitch, getting the guy looking, and then his new teammates just mobbing him. I mean, it was so cool. Oh, wow. like, like I was a little amazing. teary-eyed watching as his dad. It was, it was really, really cool. And the best part is I asked him afterwards, I was like, how did you stay so calm? Because he had like a few 
uh, where you went to like a full count where like if you threw one more ball, it was a walk, one more strike. It was, it was, it was a strikeout. And I was like, Hey, how did you stay so calm out there? And, and he, no joke. My uh, newly nine-year-old son said to me, dad, I just whispered to myself, baseball is fun. Uh, so <laughs> just kind of a lot of wisdom coming from true there. Wow. It was cool. I feel like, yeah, I feel like we uh, we need to start a true baseball podcast where we just follow his his trajectory. Uh, but I actually, sticking on the the topic of sports, actually, this is a good segue into our trash talking this week. I have a proposal for you, Jason, because I care deeply about the future of your beloved Kansas City Chiefs, okay? I think we can all acknowledge that. I'm rooting for you guys. Yeah, all the time. Andy Reid is tired. He's got a lot going on. I, you know, I don't want to talk too much there. I know it's sensitive for you guys over there in Kansas City, but <laughs> Andy Reid is fine. <laughs> he has his hands full. He's tired. He's proven himself as a coach. I have it on good authority that you guys are looking for a new coach. I have a proposal for you. There's this guy named Joseph Kennedy out of Bremerton, Washington. Audience, it may sound familiar. We talked about him briefly a little while ago. He is a coach who is the subject of a Supreme Court ruling last term where he's the quote-unquote praying coach, right? He won his case, so he's a winner. He won his case at the Supreme Court, right? So that's one thing he's got in his favor. And that's a tough venue, you know? Like, that's all the way at the top. That's like winning the Super Bowl, right? Just like it. Yeah, just like winning the Super Bowl. Now, he's the praying coach, as we know. I'm not going to go too much into his case other than to say that he won his case. And because he won his case— the district of Bremerton, Washington is forced to rehire him. Now, big question whether they even fired him in the first place, but we won't go into that. And uh, he's uh, kind of turned up missing, Jason. <laughs> so he's uh, he uh, hasn't reported for duty. Uh, and the players are kind of confused. The district has offered him his job back. We're now deep into the high school football season, and he hasn't come back to work but he uh, he is on the the uh, conservative speaking circuit. He's been, uh, I think, even up in Alaska doing an event with Pence. He did an event at Trump National Golf Course in New Jersey. So he's going around. You know, this is, you know, this happens sometimes when you win the Super Bowl, Jason. You know, like it's tough to win two years in a row, as you guys know. Like, <laughs> like you sometimes you just get high on your own supply. But I think like after he's done with this victory tour, given that he hasn't reported for duty. In Washington, I think maybe he'll be humbled and come, and maybe you guys should bring him to Kansas City. Uh, what do you think? Uh, I, I, I like your cute little conceit of this whole thing, but I'm going to ignore it and just say uh, that I actually have a hot take about this whole thing, which is in the first week of August, the school district was like, hey, the Supreme Court says we should give you your job back, so here's the paperwork. Just fill this out and send it in, and you got your job back. And they like haven't even gotten a phone call from him. He never sent the paperwork back like he's gone, right? Well, at, when I saw that, I was like, oh, what a phony because there's all these quotes from him, you know, saying when the when the case was being decided, there was all these quotes from him saying, of course, I'll be back in a flash. I'll be back in a second. Like, I, this is all I want to do. I just want this job back. Well, he hasn't obviously turned out wanted the job back. Here's my hot take. Uh, you know, while I don't agree with this guy and I don't agree with the people he's signing up with. I'm not that surprised, and I kind of can see what he's doing here, right? Like, here's here's the thing. He was the assistant coach. He wasn't the coach. He apparently, I think, was paid like $5,000. Like, I think that was his salary or something. Um, mm, so, so it was I like see. clearly like a part-time job, right? Now, he has turned this all into, I'm the coach who was fired for praying. 
Can we be real? Like the dude was a part-time assistant coach for a football program. He probably did want his job back. And then when it turned out that everybody wanted to pay him like a lot of money, probably more than $5,000 per speaking gig to come out and give speeches. Like, I mean, does anybody blame this dude for being like, you know what? I'm probably not going to get a lot of opportunities to now. Like you can blame this dude. Cause I don't think he's like putting good things out in the world by being with Pence and all these people. But like he never even reapplied for the job before the case was decided. Like he didn't want the job anyway. So like, you know, I think it's ridiculous, but like I don't really blame the guy for for doing the cash grab. So two things, Jason. Uh, Number one, this is talking trash. Okay. Yeah. I know, but but like I'm 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 zigging. I'm not zagging. I'm zigging. Number two, (laughs) I. I care about this guy's long-term career, and he's at least got to pretend like he cares about the cause here, right? That's true. Like, I he actually think his career ending. would be advanced. Yeah. He needs the ending to the, as one of the articles said, to the sports Christian redemption movie, like yeah. for the Daily Wire or whatever we'll make. Uh, yeah, like a Gina Carano is is in the wings waiting to be, participate in the story in some way. And I'm sure like, you know, yeah, you know, Breitbart, Daily Wire could make mm-hmm. this movie. But the movie kind of sucks if he never comes back, right? That's a good point. So, you know. And, and the so, team is apparently good. They're like 2-0. and oh. So if he comes back, he could ride He could ride this thing to an assistant coaching high school championship. And uh, I'm sure in the movie he'll be the head coach. But like, you know, I could see your point. Like he does need to finish yeah. out the story if he wants this to last longer than an election cycle, this speaking gig. I think the bottom line on this guy is that – He's just full of shit. And I think if you go back, there actually were really nuanced questions before the Supreme Court around the First Amendment in that case. And I won't go into any of them. I've written about some of them. But what's fascinating to me is that when you get to the underlying facts is a guy who's full of shit. And I think that's something we shouldn't lose sight of in that case. If you're listening to this, there's a decent chance you follow political news pretty closely, which makes you completely different from most of the people who voted in the last election. In Crooked Media's new season of The Wilderness, John Favreau goes to the battlegrounds that will decide the 2022 midterms to find out what voters who aren't hooked on Twitter or cable news think about politics. With the help of grassroots organizers and strategists, Favreau will unpack what it will take for Democrats to reach these voters. Listen and subscribe to The Wilderness wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Monday. There's a huge debate going on right now around the movement of migrants within this country and immigration writ large that centers around Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who I'm sure many of our listeners know by now, pulled a stunt recently where he worked with a private contractor to fly people from Texas to Martha's Vineyard and basically drop them off, but with a video crew to catalog this, sensationalize it to try to make a point about immigration. And really, if we get to the heart of it, try to score political points to sure up his standing for an eventual presidential run. Those migrants were being treated horribly by Biden. They were hungry, homeless. They had no no opportunity at all. State of Florida, it was volunteer, offered transport to sanctuary jurisdictions because it's our view that one, the border should be secured. And we want to have Biden reinstitute policies like remain in Mexico and making sure that people aren't overwhelming. But short of that, if you believe in open borders, then it's the sanctuary jurisdictions that should have to bear the brunt of the open borders. So that's what we're doing. But what happened was 
they were they were provided um, an ability to be in the the most posh sanctuary jurisdiction maybe in the world. And obviously, it's sad that Martha's Vineyard people deported them the next day. They could have absorbed this. They chose not to. But what it shows is if 50 was a burden on one of the richest places in our country, what about all these other communities that have been overrun with hundreds or thousands? There are allegations that seem pretty credible. Boston Globe and USA Today have reported on this, that these uh, migrants were lured under false pretenses. There have been uh, local investigations opened up. There's a lawsuit filed on behalf of these migrants saying that they were given false information about where they were going, what they'd be promised when they go there. Also, the fact that this trip makes it rather inconvenient for them because they a lot of these are asylum seekers from Venezuela who are actually not, quote unquote, illegal immigrants, as Ron DeSantis calls them, but actually people who when they arrive in this country, voluntarily check in, and then they become legally allowed to move about the country while their asylum claims are being taken care of. Now they are like way far away from Texas where they originally submitted themselves for paperwork, and so they put themselves in legal jeopardy. I'll just pause there to say there are two parts to this. There's the substance and the politics. Let's start at the substance here. Jason, do you think DeSantis is in legal trouble here And does this raise, like, he's trying to raise a conversation about immigration. Has he succeeded? Yes, I think he's succeeded in changing the subject, no doubt, right? He's he's succeeded in changing the subject to that, as is the entire Republican Party seeking to do currently. You know, gas prices came down, inflation forecasts got a little bit better, and suddenly, as usually happens, it's time to talk about brown people. You know, it's it's September in an election year. Like it's talk about brown people month nationally. Uh, and so will be October. But I do think he succeeded in that. I think, yeah, like it if they lured these people under false pretenses and then dumped them off, like just the mere fact that this woman who's supposedly named Perla, this blonde woman named Perla, who the migrants have been saying, you know, is one of the people who told them they were going to get all these things when they arrived. The fact that no one has come forward and been like, oh, that's me, is kind of a good indication that they're concerned about culpability here uh, from a criminal standpoint. Yes. And what's interesting about this, this reminds me of Bridgegate in a certain way, if people remember the Chris Christie scandal, which is started with one thing and then kind of percolated and became about much more than that and eventually reached the doorstep of Chris Christie. But what makes this different is that DeSantis is not hiding the fact that he's behind these flights. There's a private contractor called Virtual Systems, which flew these people. When DeSantis was on Fox, he's been on Fox News quite a lot uh, during this period of time. He originally got this idea from a Tucker Carlson segment, apparently. Tucker Carlson originally floated this idea. DeSantis is 100% taking credit for the flights, and he's he's speaking like very expansively about this is what these people were promised, this is why it's a good thing. So he's owning it. Now, he's probably disputing what the it is right now, but there are very simple questions of fact and law that are going to be determined in these investigations, both you know the criminal investigations and civil investigations, and it's very simple. Were these people promised anything to go to Martha's Vineyard? Were those promises real or fraudulent? And if they're fraudulent, then that, you know, we have a we have a whole crime called fraud, right? So if you lure people to go somewhere under false pretenses, you're criminally liable. And so that's what will reach his doorstep. 
obviously it's worth saying, you know, I don't think our audience needs to hear this, but I think it's it's worth underlying that this is morally reprehensible to lure people to go somewhere under false pretenses. This is majority 54. I don't think we have to convince our audience of that. I think what our audience is dealing with are people in their lives who are like, hey, I think this guy has a point. Like our immigration system is broken. And there are certain thinkers like Liz Smith, uh, who we'll be interviewing shortly for our podcast, Democratic Strategist, who believe that Democrats walked into this trap by quote unquote deporting, which I don't like that word in this context. These people from Martha's Vineyard to the mainland of Massachusetts. Now, the word is totally deceptive. DeSantis has used it. They transported people off of an island. But like, this is kind of what DeSantis wanted was to be able to say, hey, see, like like a Texas border town can't handle all these people and neither can Martha's Vineyard. You want us to handle, you know, an unlimited amount of migrants, but you can't even handle 50 is kind of their point. And I don't know what to make of the politics of this because obviously I believe that we should welcome asylum seekers in this country. I obviously think there are common sense ways we could reform our system and make it more organized and more sensible. But there there are lots of people in this country who probably are telling our audience members, hey, good for DeSantis. He's, you know, he's sticking it to the the fancy elites out in Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, I've literally had a conversation like that this week where this person acknowledged that you know, he he said, you know, I don't like the way DeSantis did it, but he said exactly what you're talking about, which is, you know, it's unfair that, you know, these towns across the southern part of the country are, are required to put up with this and nobody has to put up with it up north. And, you know, on the one hand, like a lot of people understandably bristle at that, like, hey, you know, different parts of the country face different challenges, et cetera. But look, I, I think we shouldn't underestimate that that argument will resonate. Now, in DeSantis's case, it's pretty disingenuous because obviously, like, he didn't even take these people out of Florida. He took them out of Texas. And when that was pointed out to him, he had the completely bogus answer of, well, look, we had to do it that way because when they come to us, they come in onesies and twosies. They don't come in these, which is not like a response. It's like, so you didn't have like 50 people in mass, so you had to go kidnap them. But I don't think we should underestimate that as an effective strategy to try and do what the purpose of this is, which is to shift the conversation to immigration. Just like I said, like this is they all they wanted to talk about was inflation until that fell out of like the polls as one of the things people were most concerned about, replaced, by the way, by abortion. So what we're really doing here, I think, if the Republicans, what they're really doing is they don't want people to talk about women's reproductive rights. They want people to talk about brown people and about immigration. So does that mean we walked into the trap? Well, I don't think so, because what's the alternative? Like trying to do this on Martha's Vineyard, which is probably not even populated sufficiently to have the resources for this. And um, and heading into, you know, the wrong season for people right. to find jobs, you know, like it's a seasonal yeah, exactly. place that's built off of tourism. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think yeah. it's walking into a trap, but I don't think it should be underestimated just the same way that the caravan shouldn't be under, you know, when they did that shouldn't be underestimated that the whole immigrants are bringing Ebola. Th- I mean, like this is their move. Like don't underestimate it. And I think there are, there's a lot here when it comes to our immigration system. There's a really good David Frum piece in the Atlantic that people should, you know, if you go to the Atlantic right now, you could find it. And it goes through just 
what we're dealing with in terms of what's happening on the border. And I'm actually going to, I'm going to be in Texas in a couple of days and I'm trying to work with my team to get to one of these border towns just to really get a sense of what people are truly dealing with there. Because I know what we're dealing with in New York. And if I'm being honest, our mayor is overwhelmed here, he says. Uh, I don't think we should be. I think this is a public policy failure that I won't go into in New York. But he's claiming that we can't deal with the influx of immigrants in New York. Now, once again, I think that is wrong. But if he's saying that, I really do want to hear what's happening on the border. And I want to take that argument really seriously. And if you read this front piece, what you'll see is that there's a combination of factors that are leading to a dramatic increase of people wanting to cross the border. One of them is that there was this Remain in Mexico policy under Trump that continued under Biden that has since been rescinded, combined with the fact that our asylum process is so broken, our courts can't really handle asylum cases, that people can basically apply for asylum and be freely admitted throughout the country and then keep appealing almost indefinitely because the cases are so backlogged. Um, And so, you know, it kind of just makes it so that whether you have a credible case of asylum or not, um, you're basically being treated the same. Combined with the fact that we have a ton of jobs in this country, there are five job openings, according to the Chamber of Commerce, for every three unemployed workers. So people are going to come here, right? And to Jared Polis's point, we talked to the Colorado governor a little while ago, like one of the best things we can do to decrease inflation in this country is actually let people in to do the jobs that we can't fill because it actually decreased the cost of services and goods in this country. So it's all to say is I actually think there's a different way we can message this. I think there's a hardcore economic way we can message this, which is the way that Governor Polis is doing, which is, look, like even if you don't buy into the diversity argument and the human rights argument and the dignity arguments that you and I, of course, believe in, we need people to do the jobs, right? That small business owner, that person who has to frequent those small businesses, et cetera, we need people to do those jobs from everything from service jobs all the way up to doctors and nurses, right? We need people to do those jobs. The other argument here is they're trying to argue here on the right that there's this cosmopolitan elite that is behind all this immigration, right? Like that we're we're pushing immigration because it's like some kind of conspiracy against small town America. And what I would say to people who are in your life who make that argument is just ask them what's going on in their community. Are there enough people to fill jobs? Probably not. And if there aren't enough people to fill jobs, ask yourself if you were in a country that's economically distressed, would you try to come here to take those jobs and provide for your family? The answer is, of course, yes. So this is about incentives and rules, not about a conspiracy, you know? Yeah. And what when I had this conversation with somebody this week, what I kept going back to was, yes, of course, there's not enough jobs and enough resources in small towns along the border. So yes, they feel overrun by this. But like, if Congress were to step up and do what it has, you know, feebly come very close to and attempted to do several times, which is to create an actual pipeline for people to come into the country and to fill these jobs legally and to work. Well, then people wouldn't have to, they wouldn't stay in that place. They would, they would span out throughout the country. Like we would have an actual process, but instead what the other side wants to do is they want to make this a, a black and white choice between having a secure border as if that's a magic wand thing that you can just do like i've been to the border we did an episode of this podcast at the border at one point like there are places where it's private land that you can't you know that like you can't just take all of it and even if you did like there are places you can't construct these magical walls right so that's a reality but they want to make it as if it's one or the other when the truth is like 
what we actually need to do is create a process for these people to be able to fan out throughout the country, go to where the work is legally and not have to congregate along the border. But that's an actual solution. And that's not what they're interested in. And that's the point I would make to be what they're interested in is making people afraid of it and scoring a lot of points on this. If they were interested in actually doing something to handle this kind of immigration, they would do it in a way that benefits the country and these people. But that's not what they're doing. Yeah. So I think this is this is a thing that's going to evolve. Right. And right now it's working to DeSantis' advantage in a way, right? Because he's trying to run in 2024. The majorities of Republicans are with him on this and in the, you know, screwed up way our politics work. I think you said you have to win the pennant before you win the World Series or whatever. He's solely focused on that. He does have a gubernatorial reelection right now and he is ahead. Like the latest 538 polls have him about six points ahead on average than Charlie Crist. Uh, his opponent. Now, six isn't a done deal. You know, it's not 41-7, you know? Like, it's it's a pretty, <laughs> it's it's narrow enough. People are going to listen to this episode and think that the Bills and the Chiefs just played and that the Chiefs lost 41-7. Yeah. That's not yeah. what happened, people. Anyway, continue. That's only, yeah, that'll happen in a couple of weeks. But the, uh, it's tight enough that if you squint, you could be like, hey, he could be in trouble here. There's a political article that makes an argument that in South Florida, you know, they have Cuban immigrants and others who there are things like the boat lift in history that like this kind of feels a little bit like that and that DeSantis could be penalized for that. I do want to caution people on this. First of all, six is probably 10 or more. So it's a pretty wide margin because polls have traditionally gotten these things wrong in states like Florida. Two is that if you read that piece in Politico, it's all Democratic strategists saying that DeSantis is in trouble. Uh, a member of our team spoke to Carlos Curbelo, who's a former non-Trump uh, Republican congressman from Miami who's doing a show for us here at Lost Debate. And he was basically like, yeah, maybe it'll hurt him a little bit, but he's in pretty good shape down here. And so my sense is as much as I want him to lose DeSantis, he's going to probably win his general election and I think a lot of people are like, oh, he's going to be locked up over this or he's going to lose his reelection. My sense is he'll probably throw somebody under the bus on the legal side of this. He'll probably win his reelection. I hope not, but he probably will. And this will probably work to his advantage, sadly. A hundred percent. Like people need to come to understand that uh, Ron DeSantis is going to be a part of our political lives for a while. The guy is 44 yep. years old. He's clearly good at this. He got elected governor of Florida at what, 3940? Like, I mean, he knows what he's doing. And is there anybody else on the Republican side who seems willing to go out there and say, yeah, I'll run in a primary against Trump? No, this dude is, he's a comer. Like, he, he's, we're going to be dealing with him a long time. And honestly, even if somehow he lost his reelection, I don't think it would change the fact that he would be running for president in 24. So, I think it's only going to help him. He doesn't have a go to the middle strategy right now. His strategy is it's a midterm election. It's a turnout election. Let me get my people to turn out. Yeah. And I think like part of how you deal with a DeSantis, because I think this is a good segue into like, well, if he's going to be in our life forever, like what do you do about it? There was an interesting piece by Ross Barkin also in the Atlantic. I think I'm chilling for the Atlantic today, but he said, all right, what could Democrats do about this? And what he said was if instead of Eric Adams complaining about New York's ability to handle the influx of migrants. What if we said, send more? 
like, what if we actually stood up to the hotel trade union and actually did what we said we would do and convert some of these underutilized hotels or decrepit hotels in New York and turn them into shelters, right? What if we streamlined the process and, and built, as you know, from Veterans Community Project, you can do housing fast if you cut through the red tape, right? What if we mobilized our society and said, all right, more here, because right now the restaurant industry, all the way up to higher paying jobs like nurses, doctors, we have shortages across the board from service all the way up to highly skilled. And if we said, all right, we'll take people coming in, whether you're a doctor or you uh, don't have like translatable skills at the at the sort of high paying level, but we can get you in on some of the service sector jobs that we need. And then we show people, hey, we've actually taken control of deflation, uh, inflation in New York by welcoming immigrants. And we've also shown our morality. And this is a test case of how we can actually do this well, kind of went on the offense on this instead of on the defense. That's what Ross Barkin is kind of arguing. I'm kind of with him on that. Well, you know, I'm watching this play out in real time in St. Louis. There is a place in the country that has dialed in on this strategy, not for the purposes of making any difference in in how elections turn out, but because St. Louis has decided that that's what's best for St. Louis. I've been actively involved in working with the city of St. Louis and with the business leaders in St. Louis to bring, as you know, a bunch of Afghan evacuees, people that my organization got out and are in limbo right now in Albania to bring them to St. Louis. And, you know, I'm looking, I just brought it back up. I'm looking at a headline in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch from August 30th that says St. Louis pushes U.S. to send more refugees here, quote, we are ready. And it's the mayor of St. Louis and the civic leaders have all said, like, we want to be the number one place. And it's because St. Louis, you know, looks at the way its city has developed and says, you know, we have a problem of population loss in the core of our community. And we want to refill that population, particularly with workers. We, it's really important to the workforce here. And so there are other places like this in the country. And, and so, you know, big credit uh, to St. Louis for for being really visionary on this. And in the upside to this is it has nothing to do with partisan politics. I mean, it is all, I mean, look, I'm sure there are several people involved in this, business leaders who I don't think they're exactly big liberals, right? But they recognize that it's what's best for St. Louis. And yeah, I think that there are places where it's probably what's best for the political debate over over immigration. The reality is, is that the places where people are not willing to do that, it's because, you know, I think we have to concede that there are places where they feel like it won't be good politics at home. It might be good politics nationally, but it might not be good politics at home. Yeah. And my sense is let those places suffer from the shortages and let those politics play out and let us show something else. Because if we believe in a robust immigration uh, to the United States, we have to show it in our own communities, right? Like to me, as I was progressive, like the most progressive places have to get this right. Otherwise, we don't actually believe in it. They're right. If we can't handle this inside of our blue cities and states, then they are right. So let's show them that they're wrong. Hey, Jason, I went back up to adult tennis camp this weekend. I took with me a bunch of these packets of Athletic Greens AG1. I took two packets on Saturday and three on Sunday. It was one of those days. But, you know, for me, what's so exciting about AG1 is that, like, it speeds up the recovery. I don't know if you've had this experience. Like, if you've had, like, a really difficult day of just, like, you know, long workout or, like, one of those double headers in baseball, like, I don't know what your experience is the next day, but if I load up on the AG1, I feel, like, 100% better. Well, I need to be better about doing the second dose of it in fact, you know what? I think I'll do it today. I think I'm going to do it. I think right when we finish doing this podcast, 
uh, I'm going to go drink some AG1. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hey there, I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'll love, The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics, hosted by Ashanti Golar, the president of Emerge. BGG is the one-stop shop for women of color who want to hear and talk about the world of politics. Join Ashanti this season as she talks to incredible women of color who are changing the face of politics and tackling some of the most important issues facing the United States, from reproductive justice to voting rights to climate change and more. Tune in every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. Somewhat related you know, to this question of what's happening in the service industry, Jason, the pandemic's over. I guess. That's what Biden said on 60 Minutes. I think he caught his own aides off guard, according to reporting from the Washington Post. I don't think a lot of people were ready for this announcement because at first I saw this as like, yeah, okay, like this is politics. Like we're heading to midterm elections. He's declaring victory, you know, mission accomplished, you know, what could go wrong, right? (laughs) Like mission accomplished (laughs) banner, metaphorical aircraft carrier. But uh, I get it. People are kind of over this in many ways. The data is a little complicated on that, but I think people are kind of over it. You and I have talked about this many times. What I read in this Washington Post article and some other accounts is that there's actually legal issues here. When you say that the pandemic's over, there are all sorts of things within the federal government, whether it's mandates or you know attempts to get certain funding or emergency powers that Biden has, where it seems like he might have gotten ahead of his skis or whatever the metaphor is here. <laughs> is this was this a good move? Because uh, you know historically Biden has gotten out ahead of certain announcements. Uh, I don't want to compare it to the gay marriage thing because it's way different, obviously. But he just kind of does this sometimes. He gets excited and announces things. First of all, on this podcast, I'm the one who butchers metaphors. And so I'd appreciate yeah, okay. you staying off of my territory. That's sort of okay. my thing. Uh, but second. Yeah, I I think in this case, he you could compare it to the gay marriage thing in this limited way, which is I think he may have gotten out ahead of his team because he is trying to be in touch with where the American people are, right? Like that's that's sort of similar, right? Because I can only speak to where I live. I think people regard the pandemic as having been over for a while. And yeah, and so even here. And and part of that is so much progress has been made on vaccines and that as a result it's become less lethal, you know, but I think also part of it is people can only sustain stuff for so long. And, you know, there's just attention span, what people are going to pay attention to. It can only go so long. So I think that's what it is. I mean, somebody will be mad that I say this. I feel it's over for me. Like I'm going to get my booster. I'm going to do that stuff just like I get other vaccines and I get other immunizations as time goes on. I make sure my kids do, but it's a whole other question about vaccine mandates. Like I'm still very much in favor of making sure that we have vaccine. Man- I feel like that's how we don't slide backwards, but it's really hard to get that across to people. Yeah. There's like, there's like a compliance budget that we have, right? So if we ask people, a good example is in New York, we've had this rule that you have to be vaccinated to go to restaurants and things like that, that we let, I would say, stand way too long because people ignored it. And so once you get to the point where people ignore a rule for that long, the next time you ask people to do it, 
their muscle memory now is to ignore those types of rules. So you have to be careful how long you ask people to comply with something, in my opinion, because you only want to ask people to do something as long as you absolutely need them to do it. And part of the cost-benefit analysis is not just the inconvenience of complying with the rule, but also the sort of residual lack of trust or attention that people pay to future rules that you're going to want to lay down in the event of another pandemic. And that's why I think calling something a pandemic for many, many years, we could quibble about the definition, but at some point there's going to be another thing. If that thing just bleeds into this one and we're just in a perpetual state of pandemic, then we're in a perpetual state of emergency, which means we're, we're giving the government emergency powers forever, which we should all be concerned about, even if we like the particular powers now. We also, how are we then going to convince people to be urgent the next time? Because we're like, well, we're still in a pandemic, right? Like, we got to be careful about this stuff, Well, you know? We can learn a lesson from when you go to war for 20 years, you desensitize people to the idea that the country's at war and they they stop right. seeming to care about it, Right. Same thing. Like if if you let the pandemic go on forever, people, you're right. People will not take the next one seriously. Already like half the stores I walk into still have a sign that say, you know, that masking is required. And like you walk in and nobody, including the employees is wearing a mask because at this point, like you, you wouldn't make masks required in your store. If you did, we've, let's be honest, we've reached a point where people would be like, why are they doing this? I would, people wouldn't go into that store as often. Right. Yeah. And, and just to lay out a couple of things, that doesn't mean that long COVID isn't a serious public health crisis that we need to take seriously or that COVID itself is not a serious public health crisis. I think there is a difference. And this is how I would, and I know a lot of people probably disagree with us on this, at least where I am, is you can take these things seriously without using emergency powers and emergency language to describe it in perpetuity. And even if you do agree that it's going to exist longer than now, which I respect that, right? Like I respect the argument that people say we're still in a pandemic. What I would ask of those people, and I'm, I'm after this, I'm actually doing an interview with the New York City Health Commissioner, and this is the question I'm going to ask him because we still have a vaccine mandate for public employees. And I believe in vaccines, but why the person who picks up trash in my neighborhood, the sanitation workers, have to be vaccinated to me is a different argument than why my mom, who's a nurse, has to be vaccinated, who's around elder elderly patients. That vaccine mandate for my mom should exist probably for a much longer than the person who works in sanitation, right? And, and like, there's a little bit of common sense we could bring to this. But what I'm going to ask of him and I would ask of our listeners who still believe in the pandemic is, what data do we need to see in order to not call it a pandemic anymore? That's the question that we haven't been super clear on. And if we can't say what the off-ramp is, then we should probably consider pulling back, you know, because then it would be perpetual, just like the war that we've been in that's been perpetual, you know? That's been the thing from the beginning that you and I have talked about is, Every opportunity we have to make this measurable so people can know the finish line, you've got to take that opportunity. And and after a couple of years, we should be able to know what that is. And make it make sense, right? Like, don't lift the these mandates for famous performers and athletes and then leave it in place for kids playing high school sports, right? Like, it's, like, silly, right? Like, get these things right. You know, treat the sanitation worker different from the person working in a nursing home. Don't be punitive about it. Like, as much as I'm frustrated by people who didn't, adhere to certain mandates in the past. Like, let's have a little bit of a healing process moving forward so we can, you know, lower the temperature on the pandemic politics so we could fight about something else. You know, like, I, I feel like there's there's a certain moving on that I think we have to do as a society so that we can deal with the residual effects that we need to deal with right now.
So, Ravi, as we've been recording this, we've been planning to do a last segment that was about the developments in the special master case with Trump. But actually, while we've been recording this, I've noticed that this new case has been brought by the New York Attorney General, the civil claim against it looks like they all the whole Trump family other than of course Mary Trump. <laughs> so like yeah. what we should let's look at this right like breaking this is our first breaking news thing. Let's let's uh we need some music. So there's a hundred percent chance audience that I'm going to get some of this wrong. So just bear with us uh on this. But I think this is more about just trying to put this in context. I'll give you a little bit of context as somebody who's who's kind of opined on this particular investigation for a while. There's the New York Attorney General investigation is what we're talking about here. And the New York Attorney General is Tish James. And she's been doing a civil investigation, so a non-criminal investigation into the Trump family business and three of his children. And basically what they found is they have wrapped up a years-long investigation and Letitia James is accusing Trump and his business and his family of systematically misstating the value of their properties. And so they're bringing forth a civil lawsuit by the state of New York against those people, Trump, his business, his family. That's a civil case. She's also referring the case to prosecutors for criminal investigation or for criminal charges, right? So she's saying, hey, I think there's something to look into here, criminal charges. Her office does not have the authority to bring those charges. There are two entities that could take on the criminal charges here. One is Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan District Attorney. The other is the U.S. Attorney for the state of New York. There are probably others, but those are the two main groups that could bring criminal charges against Trump. Now, this is a 220-page lawsuit that was filed in New York's uh, Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is kind of a misnomer in New York because it's actually not the ultimate court. It's actually the lower court in New York. But it's a state court filing. So I'm not going to – obviously, we don't have time to read through these 220 pages. It just dropped. But all this to say is this is a next step in a – You know, we were talking about this a little while ago. There's a lot going on. There's the Georgia investigation. There's the Mar-a-Lago documents. There's the January 6th investigations. There's the civil investigation. There's the criminal New York investigation. There's potentially, you know, U.S. attorneys in New York looking to this. So there's a lot going on. This is just one more domino falling. Specifically, it's alleged to be persistent and repeated business fraud. It's a $250 million lawsuit. She wants $250 million for the state and a prohibition on any of the Trumps leading a company in the state of New York. And she says that they used more than 200 false asset valuations over a 10-year period. Basically, that they were just saying, they were going to banks and saying that their stuff was worth like 10 times what it was worth so that they could get loans and all sorts of good financial arrangements from them, which as is often the case, you know, because I guess one of the footnotes says that it's about bank fraud, but also potentially wire fraud, I guess, right? Because one way or another, they had to get the money across. So uh, I think it's like a pretty big deal. Yeah. When you put all this stuff together, they're pretty well under siege. Yeah. And I think here's what I think is going on. And obviously I don't have time to read through all this, but I think based on what I had read earlier about this case is that the, the accusation is that not only that he is misstating the value of his properties for the purposes of getting loans, so he's inflating it in that case, then he's deflating it for the purposes of paying taxes, I think, is mm -hmm. what we're going to find here. Well, Weisselberg, in an unrelated way, who's also charged in this or named in this suit- uh, Who's the has, CFO. Yeah, pled guilty to unrelated tax evasion charges. But you can see certainly- 
it's it's hard to have both, right? Like either you evaded what you owed in taxes or you committed bank fraud because you just claimed two completely different values. Right. And it shows that you know, right? It's one thing if you were just to misstate on one side, right? You either misstated it to just the tax authorities or just the bank, then a defense to that would be like, hey, I was just wrong. But if you misstate the same asset to two different entities, it shows that you knew the difference, right? It shows more intent. So I'm just looking through right now what the Times has to say about this. And they're saying that the Trump political operation has responded by calling this a political stunt. They called Tish James an unhinged left-wing political activist. Trump called her racist, which is an interesting way to go. I mean, that's like beyond dog whistle. That's just like, hey, everybody who supports me, I just want to make sure you know that this lady's black. <laughs> like, Yeah, I'm not, not sure where that's coming from. Yes, like, yeah, you're right. Uh, so I think we'll, we'll obviously keep monitoring this. I mean, this stuff is heating up. Trump has given interviews recently where he's essentially, I think in the context of the Mar-a-Lago documents, has said basically he, he has threatened essentially civil war if he's held accountable for this kind of stuff. You know, Lindsey Graham and others have backed him up on that. So for those of you who are... Uh, looking to join that militia in the Catskills that I'm starting. It could be time for basic training. So, Can I go through two numbers in this that I think are yeah, pretty funny? It. All right. One is the Mar-a-Lago property was valued for the purposes of you know getting loans and, and what was represented to banks was valued as high as $739 million, but apparently should have been $75 million. <laughs> Wow. And the reason, uh, according to the suit, for the higher valuation was based on the false premise that it was unrestricted property and could be developed for residential use. But Trump himself signed deeds donating his residential development rights and sharply restricting change. So like he had signed documents saying that this can't be developed for residential property, but then he valued it as if it could be developed for residential property. So 10 times, right? That's the first one. Here's my favorite one because this is such a very Trump-like way to make a fraudulent claim that is so easily disproven. Trump valued his Trump Tower apartment at $327 million. This is a quote from Attorney General James. No apartment in New York City has ever sold for that amount. <laughs> uh, that's That's like quintessential Trump right there. Yeah, so you know, you know what you're gonna find. The Ben Shapiro's and all the others will find the the most charitable reading of one of these charges, and they'll be like, "Hey, like the what aboutism Olympics will start," and they'll be like, "Well, there's Bill Clinton had a you know a Ford Focus that he overvalued uh, and on Craigslist and you know in 2004, and you know that's where we'll be. So just be ready for that. I don't even know if it's worth engaging on that, but it just it shows people it's revealing. If this ends up being part of what eventually ends the Trump family saga, which I doubt it will be, but if it is, I mean, it'd be harder to get a more poetic way for it to end, just given the fact that he has spent his entire career in the public spotlight pretending to be so much richer than he actually is. Like it's been a huge, I mean, it was his hit. That's the character he played in The Apprentice. It's the linchpin to everything he has done, both politically and in business, was representing himself to be something that he was not. And if that ends up being something that civilly ruins him and criminally indicts him, that's a pretty fitting uh, thing to, to develop. 
let's talk grab an oar really quickly. There's a hurricane that's been battering Puerto Rico, which is, you know, still recovering from Maria. We want to send our thoughts and prayers over to our friends in Puerto Rico and our listeners there and their family members and, you know, encourage our listeners to donate to relief efforts there. There's one organization that we found that seems to be doing great work there called PRXPR. You can visit them at prxpr.org. And we're hoping everybody's staying safe down there. As usual, thanks for listening. Uh, You can let us know what you think of what we said in this episode or what you'd like us to address in future episodes at 508-687-2589, You can email us at m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. That's m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. The show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, E.D. Allard, and Adesua Agvanile. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman, and special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.